working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, I'm Zach Albetta, and welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. Today I'm talking with my old buddy Sam Wiseman. Sam and I were in school together at University of Missouri, Kansas City, where we both straddled the classical and jazz departments. Sam is a fixture on the Kansas City scene, where he is a go-to for musicals of all types at multiple theaters and production companies, and is involved in a broad range of creative projects, from the old school to the avant-garde. We're happy to welcome a new sponsor here at Working Drummer Podcast, Vibes Earplugs. Hearing damage is an issue that all drummers face. It can begin to occur after playing drums at full volume for just a few minutes. The standard option for hearing protection is those disposable foam earplugs, but they are not designed for musicians. They block and muffle sound to the point where you can't hear yourself or your bandmates play clearly, plus they're uncomfortable and their bright, bulky appearance tends to catch some eyes. Vibes were designed with musicians and music fans in mind. Instead of blocking and muffling sound, Vibes reduce volume by 22 decibels while still allowing you to hear yourself and the rest of your band clearly. Vibes are much more comfortable than one-size-fits-all earplugs since each pair includes three sizes of interchangeable ear tips made from soft silicone. Each pair also includes a pocket-sized carry case so you can keep track of them easily, and their clear, low-profile design makes them virtually invisible. If you want to be able to play music throughout your life, you've got to protect your hearing. Spending about 20 bucks now is a lot cheaper than spending thousands on surgery or hearing aids down the road. Uh, I can tell you this uh, from experience. A good friend of mine just had his eardrum surgically reconstructed, and that was not a quick or cheap or easy (laughs) procedure. So go to www.discovervibes.com and use promo code WDP to get 15% off plus free shipping in the U.S. So let's check in with our buddy RJ. So quick disclaimer, I did not hit the record button when we first started talking. I was uh, excited to be able to catch back up with RJ and say hello to him and get back on track with our two-week check-in with RJ. So we missed the first half, but just as a quick synopsis of what we were talking about before I hit the record button was he's on a um, 34-date tour um, with the Reverend Horton Heat, and so he's in the middle of that about 11 days in, and um, that's kind of where we're at, and we'll pick up with the conversation right here. I've been making it a point this tour, um, and I've done this to a certain extent in the past, but I've been really uh, locked in on walking every day, like preferably like if I can walk from the hotel, like I'm, I'm on Google maps all the time at this point, like I'm trying to see, Oh, okay. Can I walk? How far is the walk between the hotel and the venue? Oh, it's 1.2 miles. Okay. I can do that. And then like, maybe I'll walk back to the hotel after sound check. So, so now I got like basically like two and a half miles in of walking throughout the day, you know, and then maybe I'll Uber back or, you know, have the runner come pick me up from the hotel to go back to the show at night. But I've been making walking a serious part of what I've been doing. And, you know, I'm using my Fitbit and my Apple Watch to try to, you know, make it a little bit more of a game in terms of seeing how many steps I can hit every day. And, you know, trying to to get to the hotel 
um, gym, although that hasn't happened as much, but I, I need to get like more weight training into what I'm doing. So I have been trying to really be religious about the eating side of it and the exercise side. Also, I've been uh, using a, an app that, that I've had for a long time, but have been now really trying to, to lock in on it. Um, the Headspace app, you know, working on like uh, just like mindful uh, meditation, you know, to try to yeah. try to be more present, you know. Um, so that that's kind of like how I've been trying to manage, like just staying healthy and you know from a body and mind standpoint. And I feel better. I honestly feel better so far this first like week and a half of tour. You know, I started right after you know right on New Year's Day with all of this stuff. Like before I was out on tour, obviously. Um, you know, it's just like, you know, everyone makes those kind of resolutions and right. uh, around that time. And, you know, and I've, I've made about, let me see, I've probably made those resolutions about 25 times in a row <laughs> in my life, you know. And, and you're only 22. To make this year. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Can you believe it? <laughs> um, and so I'm trying to make them stick this year. And, and honestly, I feel like I have, I mean, I've seen a little bit of progress as far as like, you know, uh, I've lost a little bit of weight already. That's great. But like, um, but I definitely feel feel like I have more energy, and mm-hmm. people, you know, on the tour have mentioned to me that I seem like more upbeat and you know more of, uh, more energetic. So I, I feel like that's helped a lot, and I'm trying to keep that going because, like, um, you know, I, it's there's going to be a ton of touring this year, and um, uh, I actually I don't know if you remember that I you know I, I did those fill in dates with Junior Brown when he was with us on the. Right, right. I think I mentioned. I think I mentioned that on the podcast. Well, yes. you know, so their drummer had some pretty serious uh, surgery on one of his arms. You know, to work on the nerves, and so he's in a recovery mode for that arm, and then is getting the other arm done when the when the one arm heals. So they've booked me for some work with them during the time that I'm in downtime from Reverend Oh wow! Okay, so. Yeah, so like we finished this tour that we're on uh, on February 23rd, and then that's a Saturday. And then for a few days, I'm going to be like diligently learning Junior Brown's like full like headlining show because that Thursday, right after that Saturday, I'm flying back out here to California to meet up with them to do like a four or five day run out here in Southern California. Yeah. Okay, and um. Yeah, and then finally I'll be back in Nashville after that for a while. I'm excited about it. You know, I'm I'm, I'm excited and yeah. motivated. Well, cool, man. It's good to hear your voice again and and get caught up and likewise. We'll, we'll get this we'll get this rolling and we'll check back in with you in a couple of weeks and travel safe, man, and and keep on keep on walking. We'll talk to you soon. All right, we'll do. It's been great to talk to you, brother. All right, see you, RJ. Bye. All right, bye bye. If you want to support what we do here at Working Drummer, it's easy. Just go to workingdrummer.net, and along the right side of the homepage, you'll see buttons for PayPal and Patreon. Every donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. You can also contact us through that website or through our social media, and please do leave us a rating and review on iTunes and Stitcher. We are also periodically dropping archived episodes on our YouTube channel 10 at a time, so that's an easy way for you to get caught up on past episodes or revisit your favorite 
favorites and likes and follows there on YouTube are always appreciated. So unlike me, Sam has not only remained in Kansas City, but continued to keep a foot in both the jazz and the classical worlds. He's always seemed to have a calm security about him in terms of knowing what kind of musician he wanted to be and how to manifest a career that reflects that. I had a great time talking to him about it. Hope you enjoy it too. Here's Sam Wiseman. You know Musical Theater Heritage? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's the third floor of Crown Center. Mm-hmm. It's a show they're doing. It's they, They're calling it Big Bands Are Better. <laughs> and it's kind of like history of the early big band and swing era, and they have like five singers, and the this guy is going to kind of he'll kind of trace the composers and it'll be interesting. Just a little dorky, but it'll be, <laughs> it, I think it'll be cool. I, I'm calling it big bands are bitter. That's what I'm calling big it. Big bands are bitter. <laughs> that but, they are. <laughs> but it's cool. It's, it's like, uh, you know, it's like a little big band actually. And, but it'd be nice to play some, like some of that music for a month. It's going for like basically a month. So, right. What, what night is that? Or it's every well, night, it sounds like. It'll be Thursday it's it'll be Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, Sunday kind of a thing. Okay. For for a few weeks. Cool. Cool. So is that the uh is is that the show you're you're gearing up for? Are you in the middle of another one right now or are we interview are we is this the interview right now? Sure. Okay. Well um yeah. Well sort of. There's a dance group show, Owen Cox dance group show mm-hmm. um this weekend. And then that goes straight into this big band show. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, what was the uh, what was the last show you did? The last like musical theater show. Yeah. It was always Patsy Cline. Wow. <laughs> was that at the yeah. Rep? No, that was at the Dinner Theater, New Theater Restaurant. Wow. Okay. You in, man, in, you're you're playing. You're like the theater guy in Kansas City. I'm one of them. It's become that, yeah. you know, um, certainly last year, what, there was all these puzzle pieces that kind of fit together. Um, and I did, I did four shows in a row mm-hmm. and each time the last week of one show, I was rehearsing the next show and it literally just went like that. Wow. And so f- for nine months straight last year, I was doing you know, eight shows a week, basically. That's a, that's a good racket, man. (laughs) It, it was fantastic. It was, you know, it, it may never happen again. So I was like, well, I'll do it now. And right. Right. And so were the, were some of those shows at the, at the rep? Yeah. So last year started with Sweeney Todd Uh at the rep, Casey rep. And then next was sister act. The musical <laughs> at the dinner theater, mm-hmm. and then Mamma Mia, wow, um, at the dinner theater, yeah, and then always Patsy Cline at the the dinner theater. Wow, that's crazy, and um, then it just just happened that way. So yeah, yeah. And does it does it look like uh, 2019 is going to be that theater heavy again? Uh it's not going to be quite that. Uh, consistent, like back to back, right? But there's there's several shows that are coming down the the pipeline. Um, there's a couple at the Coterie Theater. You remember the Coterie? Yeah, yeah. The Children's Theater. I love working there. 
Yeah, that's kind of uh, where where you first got into the the theater thing, right? Yeah, I had always been a fan and always kind of wanted to do that. And then um that was my first like long professional theater run. Mm-hmm. Where you know, so the coterie was, you know, it's like 2 months and it, those are like 10 to 12 shows a week. Right. Because they're real short. They're like an hour long. Right. And that helped me kind of understand what it's like to do that type of playing day after day and keeping your head right and what directors and music directors want. And right. That was I, I learned a lot in, during that period. So. Yeah. And when you say that type of playing, what are you talking about? Well, musical theater, drumming, percussion is um, is just like any other playing, except um, you know the skill set is is can be all over the place. Mm-hmm. So, like just in this past year, I did Sweeney Todd, which is a very almost like classical chamber percussion type of playing. Yeah. Timpani, mallets, very orchestral playing. And then Sister Act is like gospel, funk. Right. You know, Mamma Mia is sort of pop, rock, disco. Mm-hmm. Patsy Cline is country. Right. Um, so there is no one type of musical theater playing. I guess the thing that I would say is consistent is um, just being prepared and really digging into the particular musical that you're playing and my mantra to myself about doing these shows that's helped me, I think, is in my experience, the drummer is judged on kind of how you do that first week. Mm-hmm. So it's just you and the music director typically and like the choreographer. Yeah. Right. And how quick can you pick up on changes and cues? How prepared are you when you come in the first day? Um do you have your equipment? Does it sound good? Right. So you're, you're judged that first week and then you're judged based on your worst show. <laughs> right. And, and that's been my experience. And so I try to just keep the level up and, you know, and that's served me pretty well. And then the other thing I just think about, and this is what I tell other musicians, like if I'm working with a musician in the pit who's never done a 10-week run before, mm-hmm. never played 80 shows in a row, Right, um, is that what makes it fun is that it's good. And yeah. so this, the second that people start goofing around or stop caring, and then it's not fun anymore. Right. You know, so keeping the level up is the thing that makes it fun, hmm. in, in my opinion. So those, that's sort of the, what goes through my head. Yeah, yeah. You know? I've, I, I totally relate to that um, because in the last few months especially, I've, I've um, been trying to limit myself and my gig schedule to um, – you know, things that I, that I know are going to be really high quality and then projects that I believe in, because like you said, something I realized about myself, what you realize about yourself is that what, you know, what makes it fun for you is that it's high quality, that it's good. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've definitely been on some projects and some musicals where (laughs) the level, the level wasn't quite there and it was, you know, it was just a paycheck. Um, but almost no matter what the genre is, no matter what kind of 
musical it is, whether it's the classical vein or the pop rock or whatever, um, if if the quality is there, if the if it's you know the performance is high quality, then there's something to love about it. I will say though, you know, especially if there's you know younger drummers, percussionists listening to this. Um, not that you and I are so old, but <laughs> if I was listening to this when I was 19, um, I think it's while we're talking about the quality being good, and I've been really lucky to do you know big shows with big budgets and all professional people, mm-hmm. you know, um, it wasn't always that way. And that even if maybe you find yourself in a situation where you're playing at like a small little high school musical, you know, or, mm-hmm. or, or I did music, middle school productions even, yeah. there's somebody in the pit, even if it's not the director, there's the trombone player, or there's somebody involved in that production that, that, uh, works with other people, you know, that you hope to work with. Right. 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 And that they'll notice, even if nobody in the audience notices or cares or whatever, the trombone player maybe is a, another ringer like you, yeah. you know, at the high school. And he's going to notice if you're prepared and have a good attitude. Right. And that's something that's hard to forget. Like if, if, if it's really a mess or whatever, you can still do your thing well and pe- the right people will notice that, you know? Right. And, and if nothing else, it's, you know, if, if playing in musicals is something that you want to have in your bag of tricks, um, it's, it's experience. It'll get you some reps on, on, you know, a specific show and it'll get you accustomed to how shows go because whether you're playing with a middle school or a professional theater company, the way that the pit interacts with the performers, the way the music interacts with the story, like that's all the same. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the more you can understand both musically, how you fit in, um, and then, you know, um, professionally and the schedule right. and all that stuff, how that works. I mean, just a good example of something that I literally think about a lot is how is my triangle hit impacting the story? How is it? Yeah. How does it change what the character is doing or, and, and the really good musical theater percussionists, um, think about that. Yeah. You know, the, you, the drums, especially, I mean, like a couple years ago I did, I did Chicago mm-hmm. and every little cowbell and woodblock and splash symbol and all that stuff corresponds to something that's going on stage. Right. And, and the actors are up there, you know, dancing their hearts out. And if the drummer is, doesn't care or, you know, misses it, then it ch- totally changes the look of what's going on on stage. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's important to keep that in mind and that the drums, of course, I think are the most important thing, <laughs> but they really are. I mean, especially a dance heavy show. I mean, it, that's beyond just tempos. It's just like, what is the character of your rim shot? Right. Or, or thud or right. whatever. The the sound, know? the sound that you're putting out is one of the characters in the show. For um, sure. But in terms of, uh, you know, doing a, a, a long run, you're talking about eight weeks, 80 shows, doing one of those lower level shows, you know, at a high school or something, they're usually over a weekend or over two weekends, they'll do four or five or six shows. And that gives you kind of uh, 
a little taste of what it's like to do the same show every night and how every audience is a little bit different. You know, some nights uh, the a performer will have a, a slip up on something and like you've just got to roll with uh, whatever happens that night. I mean, yeah, anything can happen. You know, they the technology has advanced in pits where there's a lot more automation out there mm-hmm. and a lot of stuff uh, can be integrated with a live pit. But you know, you you can't eliminate living people altogether because stuff breaks on stage, or you know, um, I mean, yeah, I've done shows where set pieces hit other set pieces and they have to stop, or we get you know we get keep vamping, you know, and mm-hmm. um, and, and so that's when I think as early as possible, knowing the material well, mm-hmm. so that when um, all hell breaks loose or something's changed or you can't fit your timpani on the left side and they have to go on the right side. Yeah. You understand enough about the music that that is not going to ruin your life, you know? Right. And I think in terms of, you know, making the, the MD comfortable and, and, uh, the other members of the pit, you mentioned the first week is the drummer percussionist and the MD and the choreographer and you know if you if you can demonstrate that you're uh you're right there <laughs> you know you've got the md's back um it, if and when shit goes sideways yeah i think that it's um if 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 a drummer or percussionist is has done maybe only their school shows or maybe you know a community theater show or something like that not to knock those at all, but then if you get suddenly thrown into, you know, a fully like a union, you know, um, fully professional theater, the pace is so much faster. The days are longer. Yeah. And, and so like, yeah, getting experience at a high school or anything is great because nobody is waiting around, you know, um, for the drummer to, um, like they don't want to repeat the, the direction to the drummer, right? You know, yeah. You know, I, I, I um, I've been in rehearsals where it's just a, the choreographer's talking, and it's just assumed that everybody in the room is listening to this choreographer work a scene or work um, a move, and that you're listening and you understand what they're saying or how what they're saying applies to what you do mm-hmm. whether you're the prop the props person or the lighting person or the drummer or the md and and then they just count it off five six seven eight and you've made the appropriate change right right you're not waiting for somebody to spell it out for you yes this this reminds me of of the thing i i blanked on earlier which is that being in a musical like you know if you're the drummer in any band or ensemble or musical situation, like you're part of a team, it's just, you know, the, the definition of, of what we do. But I think that, um, dynamic is, is really heightened. At least it is for me when I'm in a musical, because I see all of these different disciplines, um, Mm. you know, all of these different people coalescing to, to put this show on. And, and when you, when you mentioned, you know, if the choreographer says one thing to one person on stage that has, uh, you know, implications for everybody in the building. Yep. 
It's true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you say a team and that's true. I, I, I've said that, that drums were like a gear mm, in a big yeah, yeah. machine mm-hmm. and the drums are one of the largest gears, certainly in a show that's dance heavy. Right. Um, and then, you know, especially shows where like I've, I've been triggering click tracks and stuff like that. Yeah. I just, you, you can't go down. Right. You, <laughs> You just can't. Right. There's so many people relying on you. You know, so it's like, you know, of the gears and the people that are in the theater, you know, it's like stage manager, music director are like, you know, one and two. Right. And then you've got like your leads. And then it's, you know, the drummer, mm-hmm. in my opinion, mm-hmm. the of the people that can't fail. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, um, so that that's. And that pressure, I, I I do well with that pressure, and I think if somebody can can handle pressure like that well and stay calm, and um, then they'll they'll be successful as a musical theater drummer percussionist, assuming yeah. they can they can play you know xylophone and drum set at the same time. That's, <laughs> Easy, you know, yeah. That's 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 the basic assumption. Um, yeah. you mentioned, uh, tech and, you know, fire and click tracks. And I'd imagine that in some shows you're using, uh, pads and, and whatever else. What's, what's been your experience with, uh, you know, learning that stuff and, and incorporating it into shows? Well, it's been relatively new, uh, to me. I, I, I I've joined the, I got a, I got a Roland SPD mm-hmm. pad and I've used some other ones before, but you joined you joined uh, the cult, you joined the club. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a really it's it's been really useful. Um, and the reason I did is I I did a show at the Rep. Uh, this is three years ago. We keep referring to the oh. Rep. We should tell people this is the Kansas City Repertory Theater. One of the one of the big kind of regional theaters in the Midwest. They bring in, you know, leading people from both coasts and from. So it's a big big professional theater company. Yeah. Um, so this was a show um, called uh, Between the Lines, and it was uh, a regional, you know, pre Broadway tryout basically. Mm-hmm. And all of the creative team, the music director, the orchestrator. The assistant music director, the programmer, all those people were from, you know, from broad, the Broadway world. Mm-hmm. And they just kept asking me, can you do this? Can you do this? And I just kept saying yes. <laughs> and then I kind of had to figure out how to do it. And one of those things was integrating the Roland pad much more than I had ever done before. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of... um Everything from, you know, single timpani hits um, to triggering loops, um, all that stuff. And um, that was my first experience doing it to that level. And that was, again, just a super fast-paced experience. Um, And so I just learned a lot from those guys. Yeah. And. There was a there was a, a percussion consultant basically uh-huh. who was help, helping the orchestrator, and he was in New York. I ne- still never met him in person, but we were all in contact um, 
on a like a business communication app during rehearsals and I would ask him questions in real time and then program the pad or make changes to the part. Um, and all this was happening during these, that sort of first week. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just learned a lot and really got into how it's, uh, how you can use those forms of technology and the advantages. Um, and then I kind of have been, have pushed some of the other theaters where it's appropriate, like sister act. Mm-hmm. I kind of pushed to use my pad when I did that show only because, um, then no dancer, no, anybody can say the tempo was different today right? or, you know, it's like, no, it was the same, you know? <laughs> Uh, and then integrating sounds in a pit where there really was no space for some of the things that we needed. Obviously that helps. Yeah. So yeah, it was, that was, it was really just trial by fire with the rolling pad and, and learning more about programming and loops and integrating those things. Are you you using Ableton at all in there? Uh, so I I don't, uh, I I don't, and I didn't on those. Mm -hmm. These were, um, you know, one of the nice things about the Roland pad is it has a lot of memory, so you can really put a full show's worth of stuff directly on the pad, and then you don't need to also have space in your setup for a laptop or something. Yeah. You know, so that's one of the advantages to that pad. Right, right. Um, they're, they're, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily need to use Ableton or one of those other programs. This is a you know a, a multidisciplinary uh, uh, living <laughs> that you're making, um, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about was you like you and I were in school together at UMKC, and um, we were a couple of the students that kind of straddled the classical and jazz departments, um, and out of everybody I went to school with, um, you're you might be the only one or at least the most successful one who who has kind of maintained a foot in both of those worlds. Um, so talk about your, your college experience, kind of balancing those two disciplines and, um, and your, your career since, I mean, has it like, has, has keeping a foot in both of those worlds been intentional on your part? Was that something you always wanted to do or is it just, you kind of got into this musical racket and that's the gig? Well, um, the musical racket has, uh, I use become, that term with all due respect, by the way. <laughs> no, I, oh, I, I, I love it. I love it. And yeah, but, uh, it's sort of become something more and more over the past few years. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I always did it, but I, I've never done as many shows as I've done over the past couple of years. Right. Um, but yes, it was intentional. It was a hope that I could play classical music and jazz music, mm-hmm. you know, um, I mean, the truth is I just, all I wanted was to be able to play the drums and have a family and maybe a house. And what? at the moment, well, don't look now, buddy. <laughs> I know, not knock on wood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, that's what's happening. Um, and I'm, you know, I work hard to try to keep that going. Mm-hmm. Um, but so yeah, classical music 
was, I mean, it, I love it and I would, I would love to do it more. It's just logistically doesn't come up quite as much. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, so back, back to your question. I mean, so in college I studied lots of classical music and I've always, you know, we, you know, we were playing both all the time. Yeah. But the thing that I think was most beneficial was just juggling sort of this very diverse pile of music mm-hmm. all the time and everything that entails learning the notes, what gear has to be at what place, you know, yeah. what clothing do I need today? Mm-hmm. And that is just literally my life now only there's with two small children, (laughs) you know? Um, so that was a really good preparation. The time in school, just playing a ton and, uh, you know, great teachers, uh, and great students Mm -hmm. to learn from. That's something that I think is undervalued by people looking at colleges Mm -hmm. are the other students. Yeah. Everybody's like, well, what's the school like? What's the faculty like? And that's always important. But you're going to spend so much time with the students. Yeah. And the alumni matter. But like, what are the current students doing? Right. Is the grad student, is the TA out there gigging? And is he any good? Mm -hmm. Or she, you know, are they any good? Um, I think that that's really important um, because that's who you're going to be hanging out with and practicing with and you know, uh, and other instruments too, you know, yeah. if you're, if you're into jazz, like is the jazz band any good, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. That's, are the, are the, you know? We've, we've, we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, collegiate, uh, music programs on the podcast. Um, and a lot of people have had a lot of things to say, uh, positive and negative myself included, but that's, that's something that's never been touched on is just kind of the culture of a department. You know, we talk about the faculty, we talk about the alumni, we talk about the school's reputation and what city it's in and blah, blah, blah. But, but you know, where you're going to be doing life every day is in the studio with like, you know, a dozen other people, give or take, or sometimes way more. But, but uh, yeah, just like the, the culture, the vibe of that particular group of people um, is something that doesn't get talked about a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I remember uh, visiting UMKC and meeting a, a couple of students. I think one was Tony Huntoff. Yeah. Tony, if you're out there, hi. And um, a couple others, and they were really friendly and, you know, they were practicing, I think. Uh, you know, I went to see to see the practice rooms. They were practicing. They came out and they said hi. Mm-hmm. Um, and they seemed smart and friendly, yeah. you know. And I had sort of known um, some of the people that were at the school and knew that some of them were gigging and that there were some gigs to be had. And um, but, yeah, I just I think the students and the like the current students, like if you're a junior or senior in high school, what is a sophomore at this college that you want to go to doing Mm -hmm. besides school, if anything? Right. Or if they're just doing school, I mean, what does the percussion ensemble sound like? Right. You know, or whatever. That just, I think, is, yeah, like you said, it ha- if it hasn't come up on this, then it doesn't come up enough in general, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, the faculty and the facilities are should be a given. 
Mm-hmm. We all understand that, but you know, the the other students on other instruments too. You know, are the bass players any good at the school? <laughs> right. That, you know. <laughs> yeah that could, um, that could that could make or break your experience <laughs> for four years. Yep. Yeah. So that's just a little thing that that I like to think about and mention to younger players. You know that are trying to decide what to do. You know. Yeah. Um, and and what were your impressions like when you first? Because you grew up in Topeka, right? Yep. Like an hour and a half away or something. That's right. Yeah. Um, so when you first entered college, uh, you, you know, what, what did you think about Kansas city? What was the scene like? Um, and was it a place that you envisioned, uh, staying? Um, yes, it was a place I envisioned staying. Um, the scene I knew quite a bit about, um, because I had heard a lot of the Kansas City musicians in Topeka from the time I got into jazz music right. at all, right? all the way through high school. And I'd even met some of them and had lessons with some of them. Um, so, you know, I had heard Bob Bowman and Todd Strait and Paul Smith and Tommy Ruskin and Doug Allwater. Yeah. Um, and and um, I had heard all of them multiple times in Topeka, uh, for like jazz festivals or clinics, that kind of thing. Um, and then I also had a really good experience, um, at the university of Kansas. Uh, there was a, a jazz camp, like an offshoot of the larger, you know, band camp. Right. There was a jazz camp that I did for three or four years all mm-hmm. through high school mm-hmm. and, and met, you know, Danny Embry and, um, I think I met Jeff Harshbarger there, Yeah, you know, and some, um, of the other kids that were at the camp, I, I still play with now. Yeah. And I play with those faculty too. Right. And I should also mention, uh, Tom Morgan, who was at Washburn university in Topeka was another teacher of mine in high school. And, um, he knew a lot of those musicians as well and was say, Oh, check out Tommy Ruskin or, or whatever. Yeah. So I knew a lot about the scene and who was playing and I knew that there were good players in Kansas city. And so I, I hadn't, I didn't plan on staying, but I knew that there were good people there. Right. You know? Right. Um, and as far as like, I, I'm, I'm interested to <clears throat> get your, your, your take on Kansas city now, because you've been interacting with that scene um for close to 20 years and in that time why would you say that (laughs) because it's happening sam it's happening we're aging man um so but you know going going from a high school student to to just getting hip to the scene and the players in it to um you know being a, a husband father of two professional musician um how has not not only how has the scene changed, but how have you how has the way you've kind of thought about it and interacted with it changed? Because I would imagine at the beginning there are all kinds of you know artistic possibilities, creative possibilities, and uh, now as an adult, you know you have to take practicality into consideration and sustainability, and like how do you sustain a living on this scene? Well. Um... To the first part of your question, I mean, what is the scene like? 
now is sort of your general is your question yeah think, to start right? with uh it's good um and i think that people talk about it as if it's some sort of camelot or something <laughs> um and it's it's not that mm-hmm. but there are a lot of really good players and there's some good places to play um but i don't i try not to put too much stock into the places to play because they're going to come and go right but so but the music, there's lots of really good musicians and therefore the scene is good and the music is good mm-hmm. um and we play where we can when we can you know um which i think for a city its size is a lot yes no I mean, I, and i'm not diminishing that things are good here yeah um a lot of it has to do with the cost of living. I right, think right. there's a there's a little bit of like a Goldilocks phenomenon with Kansas City music scene and jazz scene. Yeah, um, there's there's got to be as many you know full time musicians with a house here per capita as any place. Yeah. You know? Um. But again, I just I I think it's a little more fragile than some people might like to think it is Mm -hmm. just because I, you know, people thought things were chugging along just fine 10 years ago too, you know, right before 2008. Yeah. And I, I, you know, and there was economic downturn. I had a gig that I was really excited to play right before a certain jazz club closed. (laughs) You know, suddenly and, you know, so you never know what these things. Right. But the musicians are are really good. And and um, I think that it's it's going to be nice for a while and maybe it'll continue to build. Maybe it won't. But the musicians are really good. And I'm constantly learning from people. And yeah. And I mean, I think it's been it's been nice for close to 100 years. I mean, there there have been ups and downs and clubs have come and gone and. Uh, you know, but I think embedded in, in Kansas City is just, uh, you know, an appreciation for live music, a uh, uh, high quality stable of talent. Um, and like you said, it's fragile. It's not it's not, you know, indestructible. I think um, it, it depends on musicians and, and music lovers, you know, making the choice and, and making the effort to, um, you know, on the part of the musicians, making the effort to put out what they want to put out and, and hustle and make music a part of Kansas city life. And it's uh, a choice on the part of the audience to go see it. And Mm -hmm. I think both, both parties uh, are always making that choice. I think that one really positive thing that's happened in the past 10 years and that, that is really happening um, now that's awesome is I think we've finally broken this idea of what I'm air quoting <laughs> podcast people, but what, what Kansas city jazz is. Huh? Yeah. And I think that with that cast a very long shadow mm-hmm. over everybody for a long time, as if it's some sort of museum piece. Right. You know, but I mean, to me, a defining sound of Kansas city jazz right now is somebody like Peter Schlamm mm-hmm. um, or Marcus Lewis 
and his brass and bougie big band <laughs> which 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 have you heard them i have not he was he was after my time and and i gotta get hip to him because you're like the 18th person that's mentioned him it's it it to me that is kansas city jazz because it's a full you know 16 piece big band full of kansas city musicians mostly original music and it's fronted by two mcs <laughs> And like they'll do a verse and a chorus and then there's some solos. Yeah. And then they'll do another verse and they'll be rhyming and trading with this. I mean, it's so and, cool. And shouts, shout chorus and backgrounds and, and. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, Marcus is one of these musicians that's moved here in the past few years, you know, and he has a, he has a big educational thing that he does also, but, um, I mean, to me, that's Kansas City Jazz. A big band fronted by two rappers yeah. is and should be Kansas City Jazz. Right, right. And it, it didn't used to be that way. That that idea, I think, would be, you know, blasphemy yeah. 20, 20 years ago. Maybe. Yeah. So that's a, one of the best things that's happened. It's it's interesting. I, I thought that um, that process of kind of shedding uh, the legacy, uh, I, I thought that process was underway when I lived there, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Um, but, uh, it's, I mean, it's interesting that you say it's, it's finally kind of happened. Like <laughs> it, it, it took that long. I, I think that, yeah, it was happening with the musicians when you were here, right? but maybe not with tourists or with, you know, arts presenting groups. Mm-hmm. Um, they s- still thought, well, you, you've, the Kansas city jazz is, you know, is Jay McShann or whatever. And that stuff's all amazing. Right. And should be played and should be treasured. Mm-hmm. But these other things are also really good. Yeah. And are also, also reflect what is happening in Kansas city right now. Yeah. You know, and there's just, a, there's musicians that have worked so hard like Marcus or Eddie Moore or, um, Herman Mahari who, who doesn't live here anymore, but right. people that, we're based in Kansas City who are, are like exporting what's going on here to yeah. other places. Right. And that's really important too, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, I really like that uh, it sounds like, you know, the, the, the Kansas City brand is is becoming more about, um, you know, le- less about a specific type of jazz, a specific bag, and more, yeah. about, more about just a, a creative spirit. Yeah, creative spirit, uh, uh, a nice uh, kind of collective support, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that um, those musicians I mentioned earlier deserve so much credit for, like Paul Smith and Bob Bowman and Todd Strait and yeah. Tommy and Stan Kessler and all those people. I mean, yeah. they were so welcoming to you and I right. and people like us. Um, and I think that attitude is carried over. Um, and that's helped everybody. I think yeah. all the musicians benefit when everybody's talking about everybody else. And, right. Right. You know, that's so important. Stan, Stan Kessler in particular is a, is a great, um, example of, of, I think, uh, he, to me, he kind of represents a little bit of a bridge from old Kansas city to new Kansas city. Um, because he's, I mean, what is he? 60, 65, Somewhere, somewhere around there something like that 
Um, so, you know, he was, he was a young gun during the old guard when, when Kansas city jazz was very much a specific thing. But as the years have gone by, like I'm, I'm always seeing him putting together a new group, writing new music, you know, coming up with, with new concepts, uh, and, and surrounding himself with young musicians, um, two of which were you and I, um, and, and it's just a, it's a, it's a great example of, of how you can, you can age well on a scene and stay current um, <laughs> and as, as inflexible as uh, Stan can be in some other ways. I think, I think musically he's uh, really, really open. Yeah, he's a great example. He just, and he works his tail off. Yes, that professionally, too. That too. Professionally and, and musically, and he's a great example in that way. it was in just in the last few years that the musical thing has really gotten going um but in the years prior to that when i lived there uh you know we were both playing a ton of jazz um and and you still are in addition to the to the musical stuff um so talk about a couple of the 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 jazz projects the the drum setting that you've been doing uh you mean recent more recently or you know, over the years, yeah, some of the highlights. Yeah, so I, I think the first thing that comes to mind um, would be the first regular steady gig that I had, mm-hmm. um, which was at um, like a fancy rooftop steakhouse place that you know you probably Benton's. You yeah, remember yeah. that? Played there a bunch. Yeah, and so I I got you know, once a week there. And I did that for, I think four or five years. And I played with, um, great musicians every week and developed material and, um, got to develop my own sound in like one space, which mm-hmm. I think is important too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, that was, re- that's really a def- defining change for me. Um, and I think that it's big if you're a young musician to get a steady gig of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a game changer in a lot of ways, I think. Um, so that was really significant for me. Um, I have to, it, it was really Carrie Strayer yeah. who I miss and I think about a lot. Yeah. Um, who gave me that opportunity um, so that was really big. Um, I, bass player, Gerald Spates let me play, uh, with this kind of modern jazz group, the Westport Art Ensemble. Yeah. Remember them? Yeah. Yeah. And that was a really interesting experience because it was like, I was taking over a gig from a hero, from a, from a, from a teacher, you right. know, from Todd, from Todd straight. And that also was interesting because there was no way I was going to be able to copy what he did. I just can't physically do it. Right. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that was a learning experience. Like, okay, I'm going to study these recordings and his playing and like steal what I can, uh, but then kind of do my own thing. And so those are two big opportunities early on for me that really pushed me. Um, 
you know, as far as my jazz playing, right? I right. would say it's cool. You mentioned the steady gig and, and kind of finding your sound in a specific room. Yeah. Um, because you know, so, so often we're faced with, uh, the, the, the hardships of just being in a different space all the time. And if you can just sit down in, in one room, um, you know, then, then it becomes there, there are a bunch of known quantities and you can start exploring the unknown quantities. Um, Whereas if, if, you know, if you're in a room for the first time and the room itself is, is throwing you a little bit, then it can be hard to really focus on your ideas <laughs> or your sound or. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing how different a bass drum sounds depending on the room you're in. Yeah. Some cases you can't like you, I'm hitting the bass drum, but I can't hear the bass drum. Right. Right. It just goes away someplace. Right. Um, or and all so, I can hear is bass drum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you're if you're in some sort of c- corner or something, mm-hmm. you know, and you you feel like, gosh, I'm like blasting, but then the band is like, I can't hear you. Can you play louder? You know, those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, it's not talked about as much, but if you're like a gigging player, it's just a huge factor. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so being learning to play other rooms, changing, you know, maybe have I'm using different sticks today or whatever, mm-hmm. or tuning a little different. But also, yeah, just developing something in a in a space that is known, like you said. Right. That was really big, you know. And what about your playing kind of changed or or solidified over that time? Like you, you know, you went into this steady gig and then four or five years later, what you know, what were the salient features of your playing as a result of that gig? Uh, it's very clear to me. So about that, the other thing that happened about that time, and this is showing our age is, <laughs> yeah, we're again, ancient. We're, Us mid thirties no, no, no. guys are just so no. ancient. Well, I don't mean it as we're, we're old, but, yeah. but the big change that happened was the iPod. You could record onto an iPod. Hmm. About the same time I started doing that steady gig, right? And so for 19-year-olds listening, there was this time when you couldn't just record everything (laughs) very, very easily. And so what I did during that time, in addition to playing once a week, is I I recorded almost all of those gigs. Mm. And then the next morning, I would listen to them. Mm. And um, sometimes I would take little notes, but mostly it was just trying to listen to them as if I was listening to a blue note recording or something yeah, and like, well, that sucked or that was good. Um, and so I would say the thing that happened mostly at that time was just recording and listening to myself a ton and really, um, starting to filter out the things I liked and didn't like about my playing. Yeah. Um, and editing things that, uh, like comping, right? Um, just the amount of stuff I listened to when I was comping behind a soloist and just thinking like that did nothing to help (laughs) anything. Yep. It would have been so much better if I just didn't hit the snare drum at all. Yep. Um, and it's hard to, it's hard to know that until you start listening to your own playing a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so that those were that that was definitely the big thing that happened during that time. Right, right. Um, I tell students like you know, 
once in a while I'll have a student who wants to get into jazz. It doesn't happen very often, but um, lately, uh, you know, I've just been telling students to develop time, just develop steady time, make your ride symbol feel good. Um, you know, we'll worry about the four way independence. We'll worry about comping. We'll worry about improvisation later. <laughs> um, you know, like you said, most of the blue note records that we listen to, the drumming is not as complicated as we think it is. You know, it's not all Tony Williams, uh, live at the plug nickel. Um, a lot of times yeah. it's just really, really simple ride time. But see, but let's take the, let's take Tony Williams as an example, or Jeff Tane Watts, or some of these drummers that we all love, that we as drummers we use as like an example of a drummer playing a lot. Right. We are entranced and it's intoxicating to hear all the cool stuff they play. But even them, they're still just playing time most of, most of the time. Really. Right. Right. You know, and it's easy for us to take Tony's playing or whoever and we we take it into our drummer or animal brain, mm-hmm. you know, and we think they're playing chatter the whole time, but they're not. Yeah. And so when I list started listening to myself, I was just like, this is so unnecessary, <laughs> you know. And then one other point on this that I've explained to excuse me, that I like to explain to students or younger players is that I think when you are less experienced and a younger player, you feel like as a drummer, let's say the people you're playing with aren't quite as good Mm -hmm. and the soloists aren't quite as good, that the drummer feels like it's their job to make, make it hot and make it modern and and make it hip. Mm Mm-hmm. But when you start playing with better musicians, that just causes problems generally. Yeah. yeah. And the, the better soloists you play with, the less you have to do, you know, to make it cool because it's already cool. Right. And so that all was happening for me during that period of playing this steady gig and recording all these gigs. I was playing with better players. <clears throat> and so it's just, it, it's, there's no way to really notice that. I don't think until you start recording your own playing in a jazz setting you know? mm-hmm. and think about, um, the why, not just the what, right? yeah. what you're playing. Yeah. And it sounds like that was a, that was a, a long kind of <gasps> kaleidoscopic process of, of you, you know, listening, listening to last night's gig, going back next <clears throat> week, listening to that gig. And like you said, you didn't make a ton of notes, you know, I don't know how much targeted practicing you did based on what you heard in your own recordings, but um, I, I like the idea of just having kind of a long simmering project of of constantly evaluating your work, uh, not in a judgmental way, but just like uh, that's that's what I sounded like last night. Here's what I didn't yeah. like about it. Let's keep that in mind <clears throat> next week. Yeah, the the things that I practiced because of the recordings were generally like, what was that that I just played? <laughs> you know, like I don't know what I just did. Right. And I'm gonna figure that was really cool though. I'm gonna mm-hmm. figure that out. Yeah. Um, and then like certain tempos, I, I would speed up or drag, and then I would try to work on those tempos. Mm-hmm. You know, because we all kind of, you know, drummers, we all have about four tempos that we know how to play. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like that, like in like 
like we have our four tempos right and and then we try to push or pull the band to our tempos yeah and so so that's another thing with musicals also like like learning to play the tempo even if even if the medium slow is not our medium slow tempo mm-hmm. and so listening to my recordings of myself i would then i would practice like oh boy that that was a ballad but it was a little bit of a faster ballad that i want to play mm-hmm. so i have to work on that because right. i was drag i was dragging or something right right um so what are some of the other uh, creative projects that you've been a part of recently? Well, uh, I'm, I'm in the Kansas City Jazz Orchestra. Yeah. With which Clint. is with Clint. Yeah. And another amazing drummer, percussionist, John Kazillermoot. Yeah, we've had him which, on. You have? Okay. Yeah, he was one of the first Kansas City guys I, I interviewed, I think. Okay. I got a list. I knew you did, had Doug on. Um, yeah, I've had and, Doug. I've had John. I've had Ryan Lee. Um, I think there's there's one or two others that I'm I'm not blanking on, but yeah, I'll have to listen to to John's. I haven't heard that one. That guy is amazing. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. So with John, he's in the group too, and I love that uh, experience because what I say about the Kansas City Jazz Orchestra is that's like a grown up band. Yeah. You know, John and I are like the youngest guys in that group, and we're not young. We're not like babies or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those guys have played a million gigs with all kinds of people, and they know how to play in a section and how to be a professional. Um, and so it's just a really great experience um, playing in that band because um, we've done we do like. We did, you know, a Cotton Club show, mm-hmm. um, and and really tried to just do that music as accurately as possible, right? You know, but then we've also done super modern, you know, music, um, and then you know, original music, and try to do that, and so just really trying to hone in on what the essence of whatever we're playing is, right? Right. So that's really cool. And then that, that seems to me like a kind of um, the the model of it is is like a symphony orchestra because you know some sometimes a symphony orchestra will do Beethoven five uh, and sometimes they'll do a pops concert and sometimes they'll premiere a new work um, and I love that that KCJO kind of covers all those bases in the jazz world I don't know that a lot of uh, cities have a, an ensemble that that operates that way. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, but it, it is like that. I hope we are achieving that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I mean, I know that like at least John and I have lots of conversations about what symbols or how we can make this sound more Elvin or more, you know, Joe Jones or whatever. Yeah. Um, to serve what we're playing, and it's also. I, I joke that it's like a, a high, it's like being in high school jazz band only good <laughs> because because there's two drummers a lot of the time yeah um, and I mean a lot of the time John goes to the vibes because he's an amazing vibist right uh, but you know we've oh we divvy up the tunes a lot and you know play you know 
um, percussion and stuff, Mm -hmm. you know. And it's so funny, too, because we rehearse in a high school band room, usually. (laughs) And we're just, like, going right, right back to high school jazz band, like, going back in the percussion storage room and grabbing the shakers and then goofing around a little bit. And, right. But it's, it's, it brings back some memories of high school jazz band, you know. For better like, or for worse. <laughs> yeah. But it's good. Though. It's good. Uh, and then, let's see. Uh, the People's Liberation Big Band is another totally unique thing. Yeah. Um, Brad Cox. That, yeah, Brad Cox, composer arranger evil genius yeah yeah um it's funny like if if kcjo is 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 kind of the king then i think people's liberation is like the court jester just kind of <laughs> coming in and dance, dancing around and and messing with people's heads yeah that, that's that's true i mean i but both are super fun yeah for you know for different ways or for different reasons um plbb has somehow been a thing for 10 plus years. Yeah. You know, it's, it's amazing, uh, to me like case Kansas City jazz orchestra makes sense, right? There's right. a board, there's a board of directors and there's, you know, we play in the concert hall and, you know, but PLBB is this, you know, kind of, um, I don't know what the right word is. I mean, yeah. Court jester. It's good, like, but, it's like a gorilla band. They're just kind of like, yeah. <laughs> but again, it's also full of guys that have played a million gigs mm-hmm. um, and of all different styles and stuff. Um, and that band is just all about, you know, challenging ourselves and challenging the audience um, and having fun. You know, I think one of Brad's um, most influential things that he he's in how he's influenced me is um he more than anybody i know takes the music seriously and takes you know this craft seriously um but not himself yeah and that is such a healthy way to approach what we're doing here i think yep because ultimately we're just playing the drums right like you know who cares mm mm-hmm. mhm Nobody cares. Mm-hmm. They listen to you sometimes or they don't. But, you know, obviously I care a lot, you know, but I'm talking about regular people. You know? Right. Right. So, so taking the music seriously, but not yourself is has been great. Um, and, yeah, that, you know, that band is so fun. Um, so th- those are a couple of things that come to mind. And then and then lots of, you know, small group. um stuff piano trio stuff with with our friend mark lowry and, oh yeah yeah um talked about i love the horse horse silver band it, it, you play it in and yeah. i play in yeah yeah love that uh, man horace silver is uh a, a pianist and a composer that i i don't think gets enough hype um or or recognition uh i mean he gets a fair amount but you know i i he should be up there with with miles and coltrane and and all the rest, as far as I'm concerned, just the coolest compositions. Um, and he is, he, Horace to me represents um, kind of what Bobby Watson represents is, uh, you know, checking checking both boxes of of popular accessibility and artistic depth. Mm. 
Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. I was going to say that especially drummers yeah. should be checking out Horace Silver and Bobby, too, because their music is so rhythmic. Yeah. Um, it's so much of it is not just, you know, you know, ding a ding, ding a ding with a floaty melody, yeah. which is great. But it's like very specific rhythmic shifts and hits mm-hmm. and, you know, grooves that are like specific to the song. Yes. Which jazz drummers, I feel like, lose sight of that sometimes. Yeah. Agreed. And that's, it, it shouldn't be that, you know? Yeah. You're still just playing a song, you know? I I remember uh, Nicholas Payton did a clinic at UMKC while I was there. um, And and his clinic was, uh, you know, geared towards trumpet players, horn players. And and he was talking about improvisation. And he said, if, you know, if if you have two different songs that are both a blues in F, then, you know, your, your soloing on those two songs should not be the same. Because they're they're different tunes, they have different melodies with uh, different vibes. So make your uh, solo fit accordingly. Um, and it, it that just rem- you know what you said reminded me of that. Like tailor your drum groove. Don't just play ding ding a ding at whatever tempo it's at. You know we we can still create specific grooves for specific tunes the way they do in the rock world or uh, the R&B world or, or anything else. Yeah, I think, you know, jazz drummers so often just, you know, they, 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 play, <laughs> they play the ride pattern and then think of ways to comp and think of ways to solo instead of paying attention to, like, how can I create a drum part for this tune? Um, yes, though, just going back to what we said about why am I playing? Sometimes just ding a ding is the right thing. So right, right. it's always, you know, it's a cliche that's probably been said like, you know, 80 times on this podcast, but like serve the music. Yeah. You know, sometimes ding a ding, ding a ding is, and, and a cross stick on four is exactly what is required. Right. Um, but, you know, if we're talking about Horace Silver, sometimes it's a very specific thing, right. you know. And especially like, I like to think about the hits and the form of the melody while we're playing the solos, mm, yeah. and and you know sneak in the little hit that comes on beat two. If the you know you give a little eyebrow to the pianist, and maybe you can catch that together or right. whatever. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 what I'm talking about. Is just keeping that form and the and the. Um, the specific rhythmic ideas that are in the body of the melody mm-hmm. throughout the solo, even if you're just doing ding a ding, ding a ding, which right. is you know the greatest groove that's ever been invented. Probably, <laughs> so I love playing it, but it's, yeah, yeah. And you you know you mentioned uh, Bobby and Horace's music is full of that kind of stuff, but their their drummers just executed it so well. I think Victor Lewis is is most closely associated with Bobby. Um, and as far as Horace, I mean, there was there was Art Taylor, right? There was um, Lewis Hayes is a lot, a lot of those right, okay. recordings. Um, later on, Billy Cobham, a young Billy Cobham, wow. who owns that stuff. Like, so that's kind of fun to hear him. Um, yeah, so it, it it's um, I don't know. The, the the grooves are very much tied to those songs. Mm-hmm. You know, some tunes 
can be changed around and but i don't know i think the way horace built those songs is like perfection and we should just do that yep i agree this episode is brought to you by drumsellers.com the niche marketplace where drummers drum retailers and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear list your drums for sale for free and the only fee is four percent if it sells simple Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at drumsellers.com. You kind of uh, started to, to make a segue into the other thing I want to talk to you about, which is your radio show. Um, that's kind of the other thing that you're you're known for around Kansas City is spinning jazz records on, on KKFI. Um, so it's, you know, anybody who talks to you for a few minutes becomes quickly aware that you've listened to every jazz record ever. Um, <laughs> but how long have you been doing that, that DJ gig and, and what has that brought to your musical life? Though so that's a great question. The, the second part of, uh, so it's been 10 years that long. Yeah. Wow. Uh, which is crazy. You started doing I, that while I was still there. That's yeah. I, I have playlists from 2009, Wow. a few from 2008. I, I was involved with the station before that kind of, uh, I was, a well, everybody's a volunteer, uh, all the programmers, but, um, you know, answering phones for the pledge drive and mm-hmm. all that stuff, um, replacing toilet paper, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, hosting a jazz radio show was a dream since I was a kid and, and radio, Jazz radio and playing jazz music have always been intertwined. I mean, I listened to jazz radio, and that's how I learned a ton of music and learned about musicians. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, from the time I was 12, 13, I was listening nearly every night to a local NPR station Mm -hmm. um, out of Lawrence. And they had jazz music that started at 9 p.m. and went till really all all night. But I would just start at 9, maybe finishing homework or something like that, and then just listen until I passed out a lot of the time. <laughs> and they would play old jazz and new jazz, and the hosts uh, would almost always mention the personnel. Right. Which was hugely important to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure that I heard Brian Blade for the first time on the radio, and I heard... Bill Stewart for the first time on the radio. And then, you know, I would, I would go to Best Buy or Barnes and Noble and start flipping CDs around looking for those names. Right. Yeah. And if I didn't know whose record it was, then I would at least know, well, you know, Jeff Hamilton is on this or, or, uh, Jack DeJanet or whoever. Right. So I, I would get it. So the radio and me learning how to play the jazz music were always, linked together right so so having a show number one i just it's cool to pick music and listen to it Mm -hmm. um for a couple hours every week just sit there with some nice speakers or headphones and listen to music but it's i really take it seriously sharing music with people and i really think there's some other kid out there maybe listening um Maybe not on my show because it's on a weekday afternoon, but (laughs) 
maybe in the summertime they're listening or they right. can, you know, online or something. But I, I really take it seriously and try to play good stuff. And I try to mention the personnel mm-hmm. like, you know, I just think that's important if you're learning to play jazz music or just a fan or whatever. So, yeah, it's been a great thing. I've learned a ton. I've discovered so many great musicians and, you know, and and artists and yeah, it's great. I love it. And it, it's a way for uh, local musicians to um, have a little platform, too, because in addition to playing, you know, old jazz records from decades ago, classics or unknown stuff or whatever, um, you and I think the other uh, DJs, you know, often feature local Kansas City artists that, you know, here's here's so-and-so's new record. He's at Green Lady Lounge tomorrow night. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's all. That's like central to the mission of the station mm-hmm. is to serve the community and highlight music that may not be highlighted in other formats or other places. Um, and yeah, I, I really, anytime somebody local has a record out that I think is good, which is most of the time, mm-hmm. then I play. I try to play. At least every I try to play almost every track off the record over the course of you know six months or something, right? If right. I can, um, and talk about them and mention the website, and that's that's really important. You yeah, know? and there's obviously an, an audience for this. I mean, I think people uh, everywhere are just lamenting the demise of, of terrestrial radio. Um, but you've been doing this for 10 years. KKFI has been around forever. There are multiple hosts doing multiple shows. Um, so, you know, some, somebody's, somebody's listening <laughs> in Kansas city. Well, I think that, um, yeah, terrestrial radio, as you say, like a station like KKFI that has, you know, the, I think that, uh, the latest number I heard was there's something like 80, locally produced radio shows on KKFI. Wow. Right. So there's all these different programmers of different genres of music and there's public affairs all producing a weekly show Mm -hmm. and serving a different thing. Maybe. Yeah. Like podcasts are that Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you can just go to one place at, on your radio, in your car, very easily. Um, and most people still listen to the radio in their car, yeah. I think. You know, obviously that's changing, but... Um, so just, if you just put on KKFI at 6 in the morning and you went till midnight, the range of music, it would be... It would, it would blow your mind. I mean, right. um, and that is unique to stations like KKFI because a podcast generally it's going to show you a podcast of a similar thing. Right. Like you might like, what is it? I recommend this. Mm -hmm. Like iTunes, iTunes is telling you, you like this, this one, you're going to like this one. Yeah. But KKFI is the opposite. (laughs) It's like, you know, so my, I'm on Mondays Monday morning, there's like a honky tonk old school country show, Uh you know, um, and then there's an arts, um, like local performing arts talk show 
Then there's my show, the jazz show. Right. Then there's the blues show. Then there's a show about um, uh, about environmental issues. Uh huh. And then there's a show that comes on Monday. I think it's Monday nights called Taste of Tejano. <laughs> it's that the host is speaking in Spanish the whole time. Wow. That's one that, day. That's Monday. That's, mo- that's Monday. Yeah. Jesus. So if you just left KKFI on your house, you would experience a world of, you know, of programming that, you know, so like podcast, the world is changing until everything is very targeted. Like mm-hmm. you like this thing, therefore we're giving you more of this thing. Right. And that's great. But sometimes the opposite is good too. So yeah. that's the benefit I think of terrestrial radio is giving you things you didn't know you needed, you know? Right. Right. And, and the other thing that's, that's unique about it as opposed to podcasts is, is that it's community specific. Um, yes. you know, KKFI is, is of and by and for Kansas city. Um, and you know, out of all the places I've lived, which is not a whole lot, but Kansas city has, I think the most civic pride of of any city I've lived in. Atlanta is is close. Like you know, ATL loves ATL, but um, there's just uh, there's there's really a pride about about Kansas City. I'll I'll never forget when the Royals won the Super Bowl, not the Super Bowl, the World Series. <laughs> I'm sportsing real hard right now. Uh, hmm. the, the Royals won the World Series, and like a million people showed up. Uh, at at Union Station for the parade, and I, I just I remember seeing it on TV and thinking like, not all these people are baseball fans, not all these people follow the Royals, but all of these people are Kansas Cityans, and they're showing up to say the Royals belong to us. We're proud of them. We're proud to be in Kansas City, um, and I feel like that's that spirit carries through in, in something like KKFI, like the fact that there are that many shows on a Monday. And that it's, you know, people are listening. They're, you know, KKFI belongs to Kansas City and they show up for it. Yeah, yes. And um, all that being said, though, KKFI still is always looking to um, to change and evolve. And that's been one of its successes, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so the station's been around for 30 years now. And it really existed before that, um, but not – it wasn't even broadcast. It was just like people trying to get radio happening, getting community radio happening. Mm-hmm. But as far as it being on the air, it's been 30 years or, or more now. And the saying around the station now, I think, is we're 30 years old and it's time to grow up. Mm. <laughs> right. And so with that is a new website is coming. We are um, actually looking to get into podcasting, mm-hmm. both podcasting the shows that are on the air. But also uh, one of the missions of the station is is to educate, stimulate the community. Um, and so they want to try to make KKFI. This is a, a big long term goal, but mm-hmm. teach people how to podcast, teach more people about radio, almost like, uh, just a way to build the community and also, you know, scouting for shows and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. is all a part of it. Um, so podcasting is, is a growing part of, um, of KKFI and they're just always looking to just find ways to sustain the station over the long term, which is a challenge. I mean, it's still, 
you know, a large, the large percentage of the funding is just people donating money. Right. right. So the more people we can serve, the better, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your show is on Monday afternoons? Yeah. Mondays, 1 to 3 p.m. And it is streaming, kkfi.org. Um, so it's just streaming, you know, our, streaming live Mondays from 1 to 3? Yes. And then the the archive aspect of the station is another thing that's being worked on. Oh, cool. Uh, you know, um, but that's all money. It's all infrastructure, you know. Right. right. Um, uh, but, yeah, you can – KKFI is – 90.1 FM if you're in Kansas City and then kkfi.org or you, you can find it on you know most radio apps or you know all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Cool, man. Well, it was uh it was really great talking to you. It's great to see you and glad to glad to see you thriving in in so many ways in Kansas City. I'm trying. I'm trying <laughs> real hard. I'm trying really hard. <laughs> you're doing it, man. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Well, this is really cool and thanks to Forking Drummer podcast for you know doing what they do i mean that's such a cool resource i listened to your interview with bill stewart yeah um yeah i was i was geeking out with you <laughs> during that whole conversation yeah, yeah. i I've, I've said many times on the podcast how i drove around uh with that john schofield record en route uh, in my car for an entire summer and just like absorbed it start to finish. But what I didn't realize until now is I think it was you that turned me onto that record and Bill Stewart in general. Um, cause I, yeah, like I got to, I got to Kansas city and we were talking drummers and you were like, you hip to Bill Stewart. I was like, no, who's Bill Stewart. And you were like, Oh, check out this record. That was cool. That was it. (laughs) I mean, just, just as a super dorky specific thing about him and that and just like sharing with students like that record taught me how to play a group of five. Hmm. There's a song that he starts where he plays a grouping of five. I can't remember the name of the song. And I had never heard anybody do that before. Yeah. I, I think like, oh, you can do, you I, can do that. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> I think it's that song Tugs. Yeah. Isn't that it? sounds right. Yeah. But it starts with a drum and he's like clicking on the rims kind of yep. a little yep. bit. Mm-hmm. He plays a group of five to start it. And, and it's just like changed my life not that i <laughs> you know but it's just i'd never heard anybody do that yeah so yeah that was a it was it was a fun it was a fun interview it was kind of a cool it was a cool moment for me yeah thanks for talking thank you thanks working drummer podcast thanks again to sam for that hang as you can hear he's always really thoughtful and insightful and just a pleasure to talk with i highly recommend you check out his radio show on monday afternoons i guarantee you'll hear something you dig Hope you join us next week for Matt Krause's interview. And as always, thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.